Welcome to another episode of the TZ Podcast. Today we have brought in our top-notch blogger who's kind of really taken on this role and is writing about some really important topics that are in education today. Uh, so today we thought we'd discuss her latest article and we recommend that you go to our website to read all about it. But we're really talking about four more years in school. And so this has all to do with the proposal that President Biden reached out recently to all of us and let us kind of get in on the details of what he's thinking. So let, let me start here by directly reading off your article. It says on April 28th, 2021, the, on the eve of the 100th day in office, President Joe Biden proposed a 1.8 trillion American families plan that would expand universal pre-kindergarten access, provide two years of free community college education, and fund programs to train and support teachers. So, Elena, thank you for being here with us today. Help us digest some of the details of this proposal. Sure. So it is a $1.8 trillion package, which to me is a number that's pretty unfathomable. It's in the trillions. But really to break it down, um, there are two main parts of the package. The first um, is providing $200 billion for universal high-quality pre-K education. And the other $109 billion uh, would be dedicated towards paying two years of free community college for all Americans, including undocumented immigrants. And then there's also a few billion allocated towards sort of training and equipping the next generation of American teachers. And then also $45 billion to expand nutrition programs, which would allow schools to provide universal free meals for all of their students. Awesome. And so there's a lot there just to kind of digest. Let us help some of our listeners kind of understand a few specifics here. Pre-kindergarten, um, for many of us, kind of has a wide range of ideas. So usually we're talking about pre-kinder, right? We don't actually start kinder usually until we're somewhere in five years, in the five-year range. But pre-kinder can be all different levels. And so right now, for example, you can have your son or daughter in a pre-K that's almost like a daycare. And so really what they're doing is just kind of watching the kids, having a lot of fun. And then there's others that are very competitive in terms of academics. And so what's happening is our kids are starting kindergarten at all different levels. And so we've seen that a lot at Tutor Zone where kindergartners are coming to tutoring, which at the beginning for me was a little bit of a shock. And I would say like, hey, how come you're here already? Then you just start school. And the parents are literally telling us, well, my kindergarten teacher is already telling us that there should be requirements to kindergarten of what my son or daughter should know. And so I think this in a way kind of helps with that. What do you think, Elena? Do you see how maybe having two extra years prior to kinder can kind of maybe level out a little bit as our kids go into kindergarten level? Definitely. I mean, personally, I have worked, you know, primarily with secondary students um, and then some primary students in my tutoring experiences. But recently I've worked with a really wonderful four year old. And so, um, you know, we kind of go over sounds and letters and numbers. And yeah, I can definitely see how having, you know, these one on one sessions with her, you know, weekly or biweekly is definitely kind of, you know, contributing to her readiness for kindergarten. So, yeah, I think early education is something that is pivotal obviously at that age three and four years old but is you know is linked to high school even high school completion rates college completion rates and so i think yeah starting that early um, would definitely you know be beneficial 
And I appreciate your example because I think it, it kind of puts it into perspective. You know, you're working with a four-year-old. And so that means most likely the student that would be in pre-K, but you're working with them privately or at Tudor Zone, they're going to go into kindergarten and probably way more advanced than maybe a, a student who is not getting this academic support, right? And so again, it kind of sets off kind of different standards for all the different kids that are coming into kindergarten with different backgrounds of pre-K education. And so the idea here is that, you know, three and four-year-olds would have some kind of standard pre-K uh, education, hopefully, you know, top-notch education, obviously. And in there, I think you mentioned that there's a proposal to train teachers as well, correct? Correct. Yeah, that is part of the initiative. It's like, you know, with all of this funding, you know, going into into schools, it's like, you know, of course, part of that pipeline is, you know, teachers, and you know, kind of getting, you know, teachers from diverse backgrounds, and kind of, you know, training them up so that they're ready um, to meet these new demands. And, you know, sort of one kind of fun fact I found in kind of researching early education is that on average, um, a year of um, daycare in America costs about $16,000, which to me is like, you know, it makes sense as a number, but I was like, you know, sort of blown away. I'm like, that's, you know, sort of like, that's like almost like college tuition, you know, thinking about it in terms of like course credits. Yeah, um, obviously, if you're a little shocked, you don't have kids yet. And so I think in Elena's situation, <laughs> she does it. But for some of us who have little ones, especially during this pandemic, we've realized how essential, I guess, for all of us having, you know, quality daycare is if we want to work, right? If we want to kind of, you know, find ourselves to have some free time, but also for our kids to have that social component as well and to start kind of really expanding. Another big part of this proposal is the, the the two years after high school, right? And so right now, to just be clear, why four more years? We're talking about the, the three and the four-year-olds and then post high school, so community college. So Elena, can you clarify for us what the post high school uh, proposal says? Sure, so it would be, again, it'd be $200 billion, um, or excuse me, $109 billion for two years of free community college. Um, and part of that would be sort of expanding um, money for the Pell Grant, which is, again, it's a federal grant um, given to sort of low-income students or sort of students who qualify for it. And so that would sort of um, allow them to receive those funds um, for their tuition. Excellent, and, and for us who live here in California, and I speak just at this moment for us Californians, we have started to see a lot of our community colleges start to have this big program called Promise for most of them. Uh, some of them have different names, but it is that that if you have certain requirements when you're there and you meet them at a community college, you are getting free tuition. And so I think from the perspective of California, we're starting to see that rolling out. And I think the idea of this now is to kind of make it more of a federal um, policy. And so let's talk about some advantages. What did you kind of find in your research, Elena, that are advantages to a, a proposal like this being passed? Sure, sure. I mean, I think, you know, on the pre-K side and kind of those early years of education, you know, we touched on some of that, you know, having access to education, you know, that to sort of that learning environment at an early age is definitely connected to completing high school, going on to college, so on and so forth. Um, and in terms of the two years of community college, you know, I think a lot of it um, comes down to just giving that resource, giving those opportunities um, to people um, 
who might be deterred from going to college because of cost, because they're not able to access it financially. And so I think a lot of, we're seeing a lot of education groups, a lot of education leaders really kind of um, in support of the proposal in that sense. And so I think also, um, Community colleges, I know specifically the ones that I mentioned in my article, um, I believe Com Compton Community College um, in particular are really kind of excited about this proposal because it would allow sort of a, a pipeline from students um, who are receiving that free um, tuition to be able to then potentially transfer to a four year. And so there's more of a kind of road um, in terms of um, finishing up that degree. Yeah, I definitely want to kind of expand on a few points that you, you bring up there. So first, I think most parents realize the importance of teaching our kids at a young age. I mean, they're like sponges. They learn everything that we do as examples, right? And so having an academic you know, setting for them is, is crucial, I think. There's a, a, a lot of conversation about you know, learning a second language, for example, and how important it is and how beneficial it is to start before the age of six and, and how much more difficult. And I, I saw that personally in my own life as an English language learner, someone who moved United States from Costa Rica. I was blessed to be here at the age of nine. My brother was only three and my sister was 14. And you can see the tremendous differences between how we soaked up the language. My brother was speaking English and Spanish within weeks. I was kind of starting to like dialect and figure out that whole Spanglish for a little while. And then my sister really struggled with it for a bit. As a 14-year-old, you know, you really implemented already one language and now you have to convert. And so that's one big component. Uh, I'm not saying that we're going to have Spanish being taught to all of our pre-Ks, but I'm kind of throwing that out there as a, a great idea. Uh, but but also this, this part about the community college. So I want to talk about that more. You dove a little deeper into this idea of how it impact minorities specifically. Can you kind of highlight that a little bit for us, Elena? Sure, definitely. I mean, I think, um, again, as I said, I think, um, you know, in different different states, different parts of the country, the exposure that high school students get to the idea of college in general varies widely, right? Um, for example, you know, I had an older sister who was two years older, um, so I kind of got to see her go through that whole college admission process. So by the time I was a junior, senior in college, I knew what Cal States I wanted to apply to, what UCs, what private schools, you know, so not everyone has that sort of support in place. And so I think, again, just sort of the federal government putting, putting it out there, like, on a you know kind of national level we are going to be kind of um you know putting forward this idea of two years of free community college i think will really um kind of you know put, plant that seed of college in students minds you know earlier and so they have like okay this is an option for me and you know i think community colleges um you know in over the years have really stepped up their game in terms of classes they're offering um, and just sort of the faculty that are teaching there and just, again, the different pipeline programs um, and relationships they might have with four-year institutions. So I think it's just, it's putting a spotlight on community colleges and giving students kind of that option um, and that awareness at an earlier age, hopefully. Yeah, that, that's very well said. I think the awareness and just the fact that we're having a conversation. Just the other day, um, we did college day at Tudor Zone and I just talked to seventh graders about college. And honestly, the questions they asked were just, first of all, for me, I thought were really brilliant questions for a seventh grader to ask, what are some of the better colleges, right? Just having that conversation about, well, the best college is the one that fits you. There isn't this definition of what the greatest college is, but also they talked a lot about money. And I thought this component that you're talking about pipelines 
meaning a community college that directly connects to colleges that possibly are minority serving institutions and how they would have even uh, subsidies if they just decided to go there to make that even more of an economical path as obviously student debt is a gigantic conversation here in the United States. I think that's a really important uh, part of, of your uh, blog that you tapped into there. Let's talk about the disadvantages. Like like everything, there's always two sides. Um, it sounds so peachy from everything you said so far. So what could be disadvantages that are out there right now? Yeah, I think, you know, again, at the beginning, I mentioned this is a $1.8 trillion package. And so, you know, sort of what's top of mind is where is that money coming from? And whenever there's sort of a multi-million, billion, trillion dollar package, it's like, okay, well, taxes are going to be increased somewhere, right? And I think definitely what we're seeing is, you know, conservatives in particular are, you know, definitely opposed to that. And that's sort of why, you know, there's a lot of contention around this package. And so that's that's part of it, sort of the financial aspect is, you know, how will sort of the middle class, for example, you know, be affected by this. Um, another sort of aspect is, you know, this, um, this whole package, especially the idea of free college, seems like it will create um, less inequality. But you know, I've done some research showing that 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 might not be true. In fact, it may increase inequality. Um, so, for example, um, community colleges, because of this free or subsidized tuition, they you know might start to see a major influx of students coming in. Um, but that sort of leads to the question, you know, will these community colleges have the resources to serve these students? Again, especially if they're going to be working with minority students, students who are first generation um, college attending, you know, who are going to need a lot of support in those early years, you know, will they be able to meet that demand? And so that's sort of, you know, an, un an unanswered question. Um, and then, of course, you know, perhaps the last disadvantage is, um, especially when it's sort of framed as, you know, four more years of schooling, you know, how much of that is going to be actually high quality instruction and how much of that is just going to be sort of like you know um, just sort of like passive daycare or even you know the even the term sort of indoctrination has been thrown around and so I think it's hard to know exactly what the quality of instruction would be in these four years of additional schooling yeah let me let me ask you about that just to kind of help with for our listeners what do you think um, Elena is the definition of this word indoctrination being thrown out there? in regards to this topic. So let's just, let's start by defining that, how you see that context in this conversation. Sure, I mean, indoc indoctrination, indoc you know, it's a heavily, it's become, I think, a heavily uh, sort of politicized term. But to me, it, it means um, to sort of, um, in this education sense, to kind of deliver um, a kind of curriculum that is very, very singular, very narrow. Um, and that will not necessarily allow for student-driven um, curiosity. It won't necessarily account for divergent learning patterns, you know, because of course students have, are so unique, have so many different needs, um, and, you know, might have, you know, varying accommodations at that age. So in a way, obviously, just to clarify, if we are gonna have four more years, that means four more years of public education, right? That the federal yes. government is funding. And so obviously yes. we're kind of not saying that, you know, we can pick the private school, at least not in this specific uh, conversation. It's not like the past administration was offering that whole idea of, of choice and, and having, you know, funding for you to pick. But that would kind of then say that if the argument is saying that we are proposing four more years of indoctrination, that we already have 
12 years of that then, right? So like that, that kind of argument goes with yeah. this idea that public schools are already doing. Right. I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of, of reading and research on this, um, but yeah, I think um, there is sort of, you know, an argument that's out there that public school, you know, is has sort of monopolized the field of education um, and is sort of, you know, equivalent or top amount to indoctrination. I mean, something that, you know, was surprising to me when I sort of became aware of this a few years ago was that um, sort of looking at all of the kind of kind of key politicians in America or even sort of local um, politicians and sort of realizing that um, although some of them were, you know, heavy advocates for public education, for, for more funding into public education, and yet they were sending their kids to private schools. So I do think there is something to be said about a country in which the major political players, um, by a long shot, send their children to private school. Yeah, and, and I'm blessed to have a brother who teaches at a, at a um, Cal State Fullerton, and he actually teaches ethnic studies. And we have this conversation a lot about one of the big movements against, um, you know, public schools teaching ethnic studies is this idea of indoctrination, right? Are we trying to kind of indoctrinate our students to think in a certain way differently than maybe we have before? Obviously, there's two sides of the argument. Um, we'll leave the listeners to kind of choose theirs, but I wanted to make sure we talked about that today a little bit. Um, personally, here at Tutor Zone, I think we're kind of big proponents of ethnic studies in education because I think we have seen in the past year or two how important it is for our younger kids to dialogue about many of these components. So also wanted to talk about what you brought up there too. One of the main concerns is about community colleges and possibly also the lack of quality. There are many programs right now that kids can actually apply to for first generation students that helps them with books, that helps them with the laptop, that helps them with resources. And I think, Elena, that's kind of what you were tapping into a little bit. The fear that having too many kids now sign up for community college could kind of hinder possibly those resources. Sure. I mean, I think um, there's so many uh, aspects um, that kind of go into student success and, you know, how to sort of um, help students thrive. Um, and sort of um, continue their studies, you know, making sure that we're able to actually retain these students semester over semester and kind of get them, you know, where they want to go. Um, and so, yeah, um, I think there's that issue um, and it kind of goes side by side with another issue, with, which is that, um, you know, it's hard to know just exactly where this funding will be directed to and which schools will receive it, and which won't, um, and kind of what those factors may or may not look like. Yeah, absolutely. Um... One really interesting conversation I, I believe most listeners are probably thinking about is, isn't community college already cheaper? And so why not usually have our kids go to a community college anyway, save a lot of money, and then go to a four-year? And one of my responses to parents usually is this. If you can, if you can have, if you have a son or daughter who is an absolute academic guru, meaning they got their organizational skills down, they're very self-sufficient in terms of how to approach classes then probably there's no problem with them going to the community college. They're going to go in there, they're going to be focused, they're going to knock out their undergrad, they're going to save you a lot of money, and then, I'm sorry, they're going to knock out their general ed, and then they're going to go finish their undergrad somewhere else. But my fear is for some of our, our, our kids who are graduating from high school, but they're still finding themselves in terms of being a good student, right? They're still kind of going through this mature academic maturity. And so I'm always afraid that one of those kids going to a community college 
doesn't get out, right? That my fear is like that, that maybe two years turns into four. And so I think that's part of your conversation in there as well, that, um, I, and I think you put a statistic of 18% of the students were kind of afraid that possibly they might not go on to the four-year track. And so again, that is my fear as well, that too many kids going through the community college track might not really get a, a kid who already could have gotten into a four-year track. It's almost like we kind of take that risk. Um, am I kind of interpreting that argument a little bit correctly, Elena? You are. I mean, I think, you know, to, to even kind of tie it to the pandemic, I mean, I think the, the pandemic, um, especially at this past year and a half of remote instruction has, and I think in a good way, sort of cracked the kind of um, almost elitism that comes with, you know, paying, let's say, maybe a sticker price of $60,000 and people were sort of realizing, wait, why am I going to pay thousands and thousands uh, for remote instructions when I can, yeah, when I can go to a community college for much less and get sort of similar instruction. Um, and so I think while it is good that, you know, people are kind of becoming aware of that and, you know, prestige may not be everything. Um, I, yeah, I do think that every student's situation is a little bit different and that, um, you know, there, there definitely is a sort of group or class of students who, yes, if they go to a community college, um, you know, they might, yeah, they might be there for more than two years. They might necessarily make it um, to a four year. And I think, um, yeah, for some students, even if they haven't quite reached that academic maturity, going straight into a four year where they're, you know, forced um, to adapt to the rigor of that level will then sort of, you know, acclimate and it will be, you know, in the long run, it will be, you know, good for them to have just made that that leap at the time they did. T totally agree. I think when we talk about like resources that help you, you know, academically succeed, like you, you mentioned having an older sister that came before you and already helped you kind of just be aware of this dialogue. I think that happens a lot at a four year as well. You know, we are surrounded by people who are kind of in the same I guess race that we all are which is to you know get our education get our degree and so we kind of become encouraged by that circle and i'm not saying that that's not fully there at a community college but the truth about it is many people at a community college are taking off after class to go to work to pick up a few more hours right instead of like running to the library because you know you're there for so many hours or so many classes and so i'm always again worried about the risk of possibly just if you can get into a four-year let's go and let's do that now because hopefully then you'll mature while you're there. To kind of highlight a little bit too about what Elena brought up about this pandemic and, and what it brought out is the four-year colleges in terms of applications have risen, right? It actually became much more difficult to get into a UC during the pandemic than it used to be. But community college applications or students who have enrolled, it actually dropped, which at first kind of made me think like, what happened to the fact that the economy is down. Aren't we thinking about saving money? But then I realized, well, what are the, the typical students that have to go to a community college? And they're they're coming from work fam working families, right? And so a lot of these kids had to decide, do I go to a community college or do I help my family by working? And so I think many of them had to kind of take that route. And so again, just so many things in academics that have been kind of exposed during this pandemic. Elena, just to kind of summarize it, so much good, so much bad for some other sites. How likely is this to happen? I mean, what do you think? Well, based on your findings, what, what do you kind of feel? Right, I think we're looking at not likely, at least in sort of its current iteration. And so this package would need 60 Senate votes to, to even sort of bring it to a vote. And, um, you know, kind of 
speculation I've been hearing is saying that that it's a long shot. And I mean, there even is sort of um, a precedent for it. You know, in 2013, Obama attempted to push for universal pre-K. It was shot down and it just never made it past, um, never made it past Congress. And so I think, you know, I touch on this a little bit in the article, but, you know, aside from these um, kind of political obstacles of, you know, getting X number of votes, there really needs to be a cultural or social adoption of these ideas in the U.S. I mean, education is sort of like healthcare um, in the sense that America is an anomaly. You know, America, when you compare America to other sort of well-developed um, nations in Western Europe and Asia that, you know, they have, they have these things, they have these robust social programs already in place. They have universal pre-K, they offer, um, they don't necessarily have community college, but they offer low or low cost or subsidized some sort of higher learning. And so that mindset, again, while I think there are pockets of people everywhere in the U.S. that probably are in support of these ideas. I think as a nation, it has not yet been, again, culturally or sort of ideologically adopted. And so I think that is going to be the biggest barrier to passing something this major. Yeah, I mean, those are such good points in your writing. A few years ago, when the Common Core was implemented, one of the big reasons to implement the Common Core that at least was put out there is that we were falling behind academically. I think at the moment we were ranked uh, 17th in English and 22nd in math in the world. And um, I always just kind of joked, are there that many more countries that speak English as a first language than us and how we were falling behind? But I, I feel like I'm afraid of the fact that the conversation already starts about competitiveness. Right, like in, in capitalism, everything is about competing with the rest of the world. And I know that was kind of a big piece there, but I think for, for someone who I just absolutely love, everything that I see come from academics, I just want to encourage learning before we so much make it competitive, right? Because I think sometimes that competitiveness, even though I do understand it as a global you know, platform, we need to compete with the rest of the world. If we just embrace academics for what good it does, right? The way it opens up our perspectives to things. It gives us a panoramic view of, uh, you know, society. Hopefully, if we do have ethnic studies, it makes us more empathetic and compassionate towards each other. Maybe it would be more culturally embraced. I don't know. I mean, I guess that's just my own personal take about sometimes maybe right away when we just talk about competing, competing, competing. My fear is that we continue to put more standards and we, we leave kids behind because we keep pushing forward. And then the problem just keeps getting bigger. Um, but obviously I understand that President Biden has to kind of come out and talk about how it is something about globally competing. Elena, just any last thoughts that you kind of have about this as someone who I know is a total, um, just enthusiastic for academics as well. What, what are your just personal feelings on just more schooling? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to kind of circle back to something you said, I would love to see, yes, I would love to see the rhetoric sort of shift from this is a competition, we're competing with with other nations to making an investment in our children, in our youth, right? And, and that being the focus. Um, I do think that um, any, you know, any sort of proposed funding in public education, I just overall, I sort of see that as a, as a positive and I am personally an advocate for. Um, as a side note, I am going to be, um, when I attend Columbia University in the fall, I'm going to be actually doing a graduate assistantship at Teachers College Community School in New York City. And so it's a public school, K through eight school 
that was actually founded by Columbia University and it is the only um, public school in the U.S. that has kind of a connection to a university but I'm really excited to kind of just get my hands you know in there and kind of see what the students are like um, and kind of yeah just get that whole atmosphere but yes to me the focus always comes back to you know this is an investment this is an investment in our youth therefore this is an investment in all of our futures yeah awesome I, I do like that word a lot a lot better and I, and I heard it but I thought my, my main point taken away was like let's compete compete and I think if we naturally invest, then then this virtuous cycle of competition will take care of itself. But if we invest in the good of our kids and nurturing them, and, and I've seen that so much again in this pandemic, it, it was just about sometimes just investing in, in time for them to have a social connection with an academic minded person like Elena, for example, right? Like for these kids not to kind of be taken away these examples of people who are out there kind of doing well for a year, and I thought that's an investment in itself. And I'm, I'm really proud of the ABC district and the partnership we have because they invested in bringing us in and we invested in having great young minded people like you guys and that impact that you may have made on some of these kids, I think will eventually kind of, you know, carry out into them competing in the, in the normal world one day. And so thank you so much, Elena, for this good conversation. Can't wait for the next one. Elena is putting out blogs for TutorZone weekly right now, but um, we promise that the next one will be really interesting as well. As we dive deeper, maybe into this conversation about competitiveness in the federal school system and, and about retention, you know, how kids are being retained or the opportunity that parents have to kind of become a part of that conversation. So thank you guys for joining us today. And hopefully we'll see you guys again for the future podcast where Elena will come in and talk about what's happening in the world of education. Thank you.